Today's episode is sponsored by the RevOps experts at Fullcast. With me is their head of customer success, Tyler Simons. Hey, Tyler. Revenue efficiency, sales productivity are everything today. How does Fullcast's go-to-market planning platform help RevOps teams achieve these types of goals? Well, Fullcast lets you build better territories so that the right resources are always focused on the right opportunities. When reps are motivated and zeroed in on their targets, they'll be more successful and bring in more revenue. That sounds great. I do a lot of that planning in spreadsheets today and I'm pretty happy with my spreadsheets. How is Fullcast any better than that? You must get rid of the spreadsheets because (laughs) spreadsheets create lag and errors. With Fullcast, planning and updating happen automatically all in one place. Best of all, it automates all common headache-inducing planning activities like territory rebalancing, account hierarchies, routing, and more. So when you're faced with those go-to-market plan changes, which, you know what, they happen all the time, Fullcast has your back. All right, you got me convinced. Where do I learn more about Fullcast? Our website, fullcast.io. Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. Most ops teams are notoriously strapped for resources. We scrape and we claw to build our teams and design them to make meaningful impacts on our organizations. But sometimes we just don't have the resources internally to get some of our projects done and get them done well. And that's when operators will typically turn their attention to the fragmented, overwhelming, and slightly intimidating world of operations consultants. This is particularly true of Salesforce projects and the Salesforce consulting ecosystem. But luckily for us, our guest today is an expert in that very system. That guest is Max Mater, the CEO of FoundHQ, a hiring platform that connects companies with vetted Salesforce freelancers. And Max isn't a novice in this space. Prior to FoundHQ, which he's run since 2020, he was also the founder and CEO of 20Pine, a consulting and headhunting firm that specialized in Salesforce and sales ops-related roles. In our conversation, Max teaches me about the reasons why ops teams seek out outside help. We talk about how companies should decide how much control they truly want to set the direction of their projects. And why Max fundamentally believes that the go-to-market tech strategy should not be run by RevOps. Let's start, though, with the situation that we all might find ourselves in right now or someday soon. Why do operators look outside their four walls for help in the first place? It's an interesting perspective because I have been in the Salesforce and RevOps arena for really the last 10 years. And so sort of saw the function evolve when it was, I guess, what we were calling sales ops. And it was this sort of nascent function that I think a lot of executive teams still needed to be convinced of the value of hiring sales ops. And they were figuring out where to put it within the organization. Now there's general buy-in and it's widely adopted that revenue operations is how you go to market. I think one of the challenges with how quickly the function of RevOps overall has expanded is how much is now stuffed under like one individual leader, right? So it's not just sales ops, marketing ops, CS or CX ops. 
but it's also deal desk, it's BI and data analytics team sometimes, and it's the entire go-to-market stack. And I think that last one is really where we see the need for companies to go external is just you look at the scale of most companies go to market stacks, just how many individual tools there are in place. I think a lot of that's been driven just by the kind of market of point solutions really exploding over the last five years. And so I'm, I'm sure we've all read those various studies where it's, you know, the average number of tools that a sales rep uses to get their job done is, you know, something like 15 or 12, something like that. So just managing those number of tools, I think point solutions on the surface look like oh, here's an easy tool to kind of tack on to my existing sales cloud instance. But when it comes time to start thinking about V2, what is the next phase of our go-to-market tech stack evolution? You really need narrower, more specialized experience across individual areas of the go-to-market stack, if not individual applications within the go-to-market stack. And you simply can't get a team of Salesforce admins who's going to intimately know every single tool within their go-to-market stack. And that's when I think you then need to look outside and say, what specialist knowledge do we need? What's the best way to kind of bring that into the fold to fully leverage the tools that we're spending quite a lot of money on? It's interesting that we've already reached this point in RevOps evolution where people are already worried that there's too much on RevOps plate. We've talked about this on the show before, that the charter may be getting too broad. And Max's point about tool-specific knowledge here is a good one. That's really where depth of expertise comes into play. And in Max's world, that's where he sees operators seeking that outside help. And why shouldn't we? Sales ops, customer ops, marketing ops, BI, deal desk, it's so much. But we can't just throw up our arms, so what's the alternative? Here's Max. I fundamentally do not believe that RevOps should be owning go-to-market tech strategy and therefore Salesforce strategy. Mm. The one caveat to that, I will say, is at the earliest stages of a company, right? When you're sub 50 reps, you probably don't even have a full-time Salesforce admin, or if you do, you just have one. Other teams don't have established systems specialists in place yet. That's fine. You sort of need somewhere to tuck like an individual system specialist, and it makes sense to put the Salesforce admin into RevOps. But I think a lot of companies will reach scale where they have hundreds, if not thousands of users. They have a dozen go-to-market systems specialists, and they're still reporting into RevOps. Meanwhile, the HR team has started to hire workday administrators. The finance team has NetSuite administrators. The you know, marketing ops team under potentially a different director level leader under the VP of RevOps has Marketo administrators or HubSpot administrators. Sure. And it becomes an unbelievably fragmented system strategy where each individual business unit is charting the course for the tools that they use. And I think that that is a poor way to build a scalable enterprise applications infrastructure. I think a lot of RevOps leaders that I talk to don't love when I call that out. And I think that's totally fair. I think that a lot of leaders have been in organizations where 
there is a difficult dynamic between the technology team and between the stakeholders. And, and as soon as the trust is lost and the business side feels like their needs are going unmet, that's where things can start to break down. So it's not as simple as just saying, let's remove the go-to-market tech piece from RevOps and let's stick it in this other team and have everything structured and running as it was before. You need to take a very methodical approach, not just to the reporting structure of those teams, but specifically how those teams are resourced. And I can go into to some more detail around that, but I think back to the original question, if there's one area of RevOps that I see as being a little bit of a runaway train that is the easiest to carve out and give you know that charter to another team, I think it has to be the, the tech piece. Yeah, I think I would agree with you. We, we took a pretty similar approach as we matured at Drift, right? Very small, centralized function for everything when we were smaller. And then as we grew, started to carve out data engineering systems, BI into slightly separate versions of the group. So we could do a whole episode on the pros and cons of, of where those things sit. But but I want to go back to your point about the resources, right? So I think part of one of the reasons why companies go outside to try and get help here is they are naturally, usually under-resourced in these RevOps groups. And so you mentioned kind of going out and trying to find like, as you get bigger, that very specialized knowledge about a particular tool or about a particular skill set. How should people think about balancing their internal folks with those external resources? Is it more generalist internally and specialist externally, or is that not the right mix? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so it's so contextual. So it is highly dependent on just what the appetite for investment mm-hmm. in the product roadmap is within an organization. I think generally you do see and want to see internal teams going wider because you do want to develop a model where your internal team on the Salesforce and go-to-market system side is really set up to drive strategy forward. Right. So functioning like what I, you know, kind of call and what other leaders call like a true product org, right? You look at product and engineering teams and cultures, they're not doing anything reactively. They are developing core product roadmaps with years of planning into the future, accounting for, you know, how the business is going to evolve, accounting for technical limitations and hurdles. And, the and when you say product roadmap, you're not talking about the product that that company is selling. You're talking about internally the roadmap for what you're going to build to support the organization, right? Exactly, exactly. And saying that I think the way companies approach building their core product that they're taking to market and selling is very different from the way companies approach internal product, internal tools development. But I don't think that it should be. I think it it should be that proactive strategic, very much forward-looking type of discipline. The challenge is often, to your point, resource constraints, that you need to have not just the headcount allocated to solving those problems, but also the right level of headcount and make a meaningful investment in, in terms of seniority level and everything like that. But I think that's why your internal team in an ideal state is set up to do that type of strategy, architecture, roadmap planning work. And it is easier to then fill in some of the execution-oriented gaps with outside specialists, right? I think like a good example of that is something like CPQ, which is an absolute beast. And in order for someone to be an effective 
CPQ product owner, CPQ business analyst, architect, whatever the title is, they need to be so deeply ingrained in the business, right? They are a technologist. They know all of the capabilities. They know the underlying platform architecture. They know how to do what needs to get done, but they have to spend their time embedded within the business, actually figuring out how to do those things correctly. And so it's hard to approach these problems in the right way and then still have the capacity and the bandwidth for that same person to then execute on all of this work. And so unless you're the largest enterprise companies who have 30, 40, 50 internal Salesforce specialists, you just can't cover that amount of ground. And so own the strategy in-house, delegate the actual execution with full-time refractional contractors, depending on what you need, because you can be so precise in getting specific skill sets for specific stages in the delivery, all under the kind of guidance and direction of your your full-time internal team who gets the implications from you know your unique business case. Max's split is simple when you distill his message. Own the strategy in-house, delegate the execution. He believes that the internal product development at your company or how you're building systems and processes for your internal users shouldn't be any different from how your company's product team builds what you actually sell to customers. Now, look, any product manager, designer, or engineer that actually builds a product will tell you that it isn't quite that simple. And a huge part of it is the people doing the building. Max has been inside the Salesforce ecosystem for years, first as the founder of that RevOps headhunting firm called 20Pine and now at FoundHQ. And he's seen the maturation of the resources available in that ecosystem. When it comes time to, as he puts it, own the strategy in-house and delegate the execution, I wanted to understand how he goes about finding the right people for the right jobs. First and foremost, the the way the the ecosystem, the Salesforce ecosystem is is sort of divided is three main buckets in terms of resourcing strategy. You've got consulting partners, you've got your full-time staff, and then you have freelancers or independent contractors. Each of those have a very distinct lane. There's a very distinct sort of time and place when those resources should be leveraged for different initiatives internally. Historically, and still to a large part today, the default for all things external is Salesforce Consulting Partners. Salesforce has invested tremendously in building this ecosystem of partners. There's two, 3,000, it could be off you know, on that data in, in the US alone, but there are incredible capabilities out there to tap into with partners. The biggest thing that I saw at 20Pine that sort of informed on why I launched Found about three years ago is that there's an enormous gap that exists between when the partner's job is done and when the full-time team is able to kind of pick up the roadmap and, and run with it themselves. And so a lot of this sort of filling in the gaps in the middle, either immediately post go live on a new implementation when the partner more often than not stays on for some urgent support work, but they kind of move on to the next project, or in the cases that we were just talking about, sort of your ongoing incremental product development that happens internally and figuring out how to kind of fulfill those. So consulting partners are easier to identify. You've got the App Exchange, which is effectively a directory of partners. You know, companies will go to their AE and ask for recommendations of the right partners to use. That's a reliable way to get plugged into the partners that you need. The freelancer side of the market, which is the problem we're really looking to solve with Found, is A, incredibly fragmented. 
right? So there are a lot of people who are freelancers, but you need to have an added layer of skill set verification and experience before engaging with someone. And partners obviously have that level of due diligence with the Salesforce kind of certification and partner tiering program. So there's quality controls there where the freelancer market is, is a little bit of the wild west. And then the second part is identifying who is a good freelancer is certainly part of it, but even just identifying who is a freelancer is hard enough. There is no real effective way to do that even on something like LinkedIn. You could get on, you could search, you know, freelance Salesforce developer and you'll come up with very little. So we are effectively trying to bridge that gap by building what I sort of refer to as a managed marketplace. So in the world of freelancers platforms, you've got your open marketplaces, which is like an Upwork or a Fiverr. They're designed to be fully self-serve. Anyone can sign up to be a freelancer and say they've got XYZ experience. Anyone can sign up as a company, post a project, and then they're sort of networking and you know meeting each other organically on the platform. I think that's great for scale. There's challenges there because there are no quality controls in place. So it is fully to the risk of the company going on and selecting someone and just trusting that they can do what they say they can do. And so as a managed marketplace, what we do is we actively identify, recruit, and extensively vet all of the freelancers before they're given access to our platform. So when a company comes on and registers a project, you know we have almost 4,000 global Salesforce contractors, but 100% of them have gone through an extensive vetting process before companies get visibility into them. So I think it's sort of a a two-part challenge of one, helping companies understand that this contractor piece is a resourcing option. Partners have an absolute time and place where they are best suited, but there are a lot of projects where using a partner is a little bit of a square peg round hole in my opinion. And so understanding that contractors exist and that there's ways to kind of reliably connect with them, I think is the problem that we're trying to solve. So in the three categories of staffing that Max broke down, full-time staff, Salesforce consulting partners, and freelancers, his work at FoundHQ is really focused on these freelancers. And managing the vetting process for 4,000 plus freelancers has to be quite the process to be able to confidently stand behind. Max told me that in their process, they do three things. One, a behavioral interview where they cover previous work and projects. Two, a technical assessment that's reviewed by top-tier talent. And three, a reference check. To me, as a potential hirer of these freelancers, the value is so clear. I can get a Salesforce consulting referral from anybody, but having Max and his team put their third-party validation on my choice really helps to de-risk what could be an expensive mistake. But Max said that even though his vetting process is important and the allocation of resources is key, that's not actually where he spends most of his time. Where we spend actually more of our time than on the delivery of resources and making recommendations of who you should hire as a contractor is helping companies figure out what kind of contractor they should be hiring in the first place. So the majority of the conversations we have and therefore the majority of the content that we produce is around resource modeling from the perspective of various Salesforce customers. Mm. So what is the right sequencing of hires for my stage of growth? at both a full-time level as well as a contractor level. I have such and such project, let's say it's phase two for CPQ. I think I need a Salesforce developer, is that right? Or do I need a CPQ architect or do I need a CPQ administrator, right? So I think the 
The good and bad thing with the Salesforce ecosystem over the last five years is that it, it has gotten enormous and it has grown in complexity as they continue to acquire and tack on tools. So, you know, five, six years ago, a Salesforce developer was a Salesforce developer. That is is no longer the case. Now you want a Salesforce CPQ developer or you want a developer specialized in experience cloud and front-end development. So it it's narrowed in terms of the skill set you need to identify. And I, I think a lot of customers are are still struggling with understanding what do I hire when and for which project. And so our ability to help guide them through that conversation means that we can land on on actual skill set alignment that will set the project up for success, which you know, you could put a good resource in the wrong role and that project is still going to be troubled. And so again, that, that's where we spend the majority of our time with clients, which is not, you know, that's non-revenue generating for us. We're not trying to bill out in a consulting or advisory model. That's just to get them in the position where they know what they need to hire so that we can facilitate that introduction. And I think there's value to that guidance piece too, right? Like like anything else, like any company, you do this every single day and I might need to resource a project like this four times a year, right? And so like your level of expertise for this particular type of project or this particular type of search, I think is probably the thing that actually is very, very helpful as I go through this process. This episode is sponsored by Fullcast, the company that helps operators build better sales territories. Their platform focuses the right sellers on the right opportunities, making them unstoppable. And the cherry on top, Fullcast automates common go-to-market activities like territory rebalancing, account hierarchies, routing, and more. So the plan is always in sync with operations. With Fullcast, say goodbye to -to go-to-market planning headaches and hello to your own personal planning assistant. Learn more about Fullcast today by visiting fullcast.io. Okay, let's get back to Max. We've heard so far about staffing internal ops projects with external resources that you have a choice between Salesforce consulting partners and freelancers. And as you're picking the right partner, you need to, one, figure out the skill set alignment that you're looking for, and two, scope the number of hours or the resource management capacity required for that project. But how do I even know if working with, say, a bigger group versus an individual is the right choice? The outcome of my project will ultimately be a reflection on me, my team. Picking wrong here is not an option. One of the big considerations, and this this sometimes happens kind of upstream of our conversations, sometimes we're encouraging companies to think about it from this perspective, is really understanding to what extent do you as the customer have the ability and the desire to set the direction of this project. Mm. So the reason Salesforce partners are the default option for implementing a new Salesforce product, and we would only ever do that at the smallest scale, right? We're not trying to assemble large delivery teams to implement a 2000 seat service cloud instance. You wanna go to a consulting partner that has a structured methodology, all of their resources live under one roof, you're implementing Service Cloud for the first time, you haven't done it, you don't know what the edge cases are, you want someone that is going to get to know your business but drive the end-to-end strategy, design, delivery. You want to be contributing to those goals, those objectives, and those plans, but you don't really wanna be owning them because you don't have the capabilities to do so. 
some companies, as you get into the maturity state and you're managing an existing instance and making incremental changes to it, will be well set up internally with you know, go-to-market systems leadership and architects and product owners that know the business intimately. And they are able to set the strategy, as we were talking about earlier, and really give give the roadmap planning and guidance to outside consultants who they just want to help execute. And in other instances, the company isn't resourced in such a way where they can or should set that strategy. And so I think that's really where you need to start is just a real honest look of, do we have the ability to make the decisions that we need to make from an actual Salesforce architecture perspective? If yes, that dictates the shape and profile and, and obviously skill set of the person that you need. But if no, it's a totally different calculus of the, the sort of team-based approach that you'll then need to take with finding an architect or two and a team of doers. And then you can sort of use that to back into, okay, what is the specific composition of the team need to be? How much development work is here versus configuration that an admin is going to do, et cetera. So that stuff will obviously be very specific to the project, but I think it has to start at that level of just what can we, what can we actually drive self-sufficiently? I think like that, that ownership piece for me is really interesting. And it's all honestly been an area where I've personally struggled when working with outside consultants or, or partners, because, you know, maybe it's me, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a control freak and I got to let go. But like part of working with folks like that is the amount of time you need to spend bringing them up to speed, giving them the business context, giving as much direction as you possibly can for them to be able to go off and do the work that you're asking them to do. And so at a certain point, the amount of time and investment you put into scoping, teaching, bringing that business context, like starts to lessen for me the impact that they might have by having an external party actually do the work, right? Same thing when you're bringing in a brand new tool that's not Salesforce and you have to train people on it. Like I'd much rather our own team train our reps or whoever the end users are on the drift context of how we're going to use that as opposed to just the cookie cutter version of however they might roll out that new tool. Help me overcome that. Like, am I, am I thinking about that the right way? Should I like just, Sean, let, let go? How should I think about that ownership piece when having these types of consulting conversations? Well, I think that's the, the big reason why when we sort of talk about resourcing options, we really do try and take as unbiased of a view as possible and saying, hey, look, these are the, the benefits, the advantages, the times that you should use a consulting partner. Here are some alternatives and when we recommend looking at contractors. I think the biggest reason why we see at least larger project work is because consulting partners do want to take more control within the project. And there's a lot of reasons for that. They feel like they are bringing the expertise and they want to set the project up for success. And, and in order for them to do so, they need to be in full control of the decisions that are getting made so that the final solution that's delivered is what they think is the best solution. That's valid. You know, if they have kind of customer success in mind, which they do, I can see that frame of mind and how that translates to the end goal. And there's also reasons why I think they want control just from a delivery methodology and a project planning perspective. If they are controlling the full roadmap, all the timelines, 
every step of the way, it's a lot easier for them to slot in the resources that they have on their team. And as a professional services firm, managing bench utilization is like the hardest thing that you have to do as the company scales. And it's easier when your projects are predictable because you are calling the shots. A lot of companies, when they are in a position to drive strategy and or training and change management themselves, To your point, they absolutely want to do so. And that's where I think there can be a little bit of conflict between how customers want to get the project done and how consulting partners want to get the project done. And that's one of the very specific reasons why companies do bring in contractors is just because inherently the expectation of that engagement is they are an embedded member of your team. Whether they're embedded on a full-time 40-hour-a-week project or they're embedded as a a 15-hour-a-week Salesforce administrator, They function in terms of how they interact and collaborate with you as if they are a member of your organization in a way that consulting partners just aren't designed to function. And so I do think that that is a big advantage for the kinds of companies who are looking for that level of, of control and sort of continuity from an internal resource standpoint. Max says that FoundHQ is not itself meant to be a consulting company. But his expertise on how companies can best work with consultants clearly sets him apart as someone that hiring companies would be smart to listen to. And as he works with so many RevOps teams and the same types of needs, his opinion about the purview of RevOps has only gotten stronger. I think that RevOps as a team and organization-wide really stand to benefit from loosening control over how much they want to own Salesforce. And I think that this is one of the biggest challenges because of the fact that the evolution starts with RevOps managing Salesforce and go-to-market systems. They hire a Salesforce admin. They're still fully in control because that's how it starts in almost 100% of use cases. It's always the situation where something is now being taken away from the RevOps team. Something that used to be within their purview, their control is now being taken away from them. And in no context does that feel good, especially if if you've been doing a competent job with it up until that point. But I think centralizing that system strategy has enormous benefits, not the least of which is just getting technology strategy off the plate of RevOps. I mean, how many RevOps leaders actually want to be spending the time (laughs) managing the tech stack versus how many of them would prefer to control this tech stack because they're worried about what it means if they don't. Because I think the vast majority fall into that second camp. They've seen scenarios and structures that didn't work. And so this is the, the best scenario for them to get what they need, where you can set it up in such a way that Salesforce, is, the team has spun out. You stand up business analysts and product owners that are basically embedded within the business anyway. So they effectively have a dotted line into RevOps, but you don't need to manage the people. You don't need to manage the technology. You don't need to manage the support. So I think that taking that perspective in mind is a big piece of advice for, for RevOps teams that have the option or opportunity to kind of rethink some of these structural things. And I think what you're recommending will be really hard for some people, right? And to me, the best way to think about it is as if 
you are an individual as opposed to a team, right? So as an individual, if you want to grow in your career in any way, shape or form, at a certain point, you need to teach other people how to do the stuff that you do because you can't grow until somebody else does the stuff that you do today, right? And so even if you look at it from a purely selfish perspective, teaching other people how to do that stuff takes it off your plate, opens up more opportunity for you, likely something more strategic, right? Like, and it allows you to grow. I think if you take that that same example and insert the RevOps function there, it's the exact same thing that you're saying, right? In order for the function to become the strategic partner that I think every operator wants to be, you have to get out of the weeds of some of that stuff, right? And like, to your point, there's going to be ripple effects of system decisions on the, you know, how you run your go-to-market. But like, in order to do that, you've got to give up something because you, if you just try to do all of it at the same time, in my opinion, you're going to do a mediocre job at every single one of those, you know, seven buckets that you said at the beginning of the show. Exactly. And I think that's a, a big one. So I've got a prime example. I was just talking to the former head of biz tech at, at InVision, which is a you know SaaS prototyping tool that's kind of like a Figma, like Miro before Miro existed, raised a ton of cash. And I think this example really speaks to a the the value and benefits of that go to market systems can provide overall to the business and b speaks to why i think it needs to be run like a technology and product discipline and not to take anything away from revops leaders and their capabilities managing system strategy because there are plenty out there that we talk to who are incredibly sharp technically from an application architecture perspective, they understand it, but they are still business folks. They are ops folks. They are not technologists. And I think we were just catching up the other week and this example was such a clear aha in terms of the value you can realize as a RevOps team by loosening control a little bit. And it was, you know, she had been talking to the product and eng team about a use case that they'd identified, and there was just no capacity within the, the core product and engineering team to approach this, this initiative. And so what, what she and her team had seen was that a, a lot was being invested in low-dollar, high-volume SMB selling motions, low-dollar expansions and renewals. So they prototyped, the biz tech team prototyped and designed a self-serve model that was built leveraging Salesforce and Zora, which is a you know subscription billing tool, and Pendo. So all internal tools that was a solution that nudged customers that were up for renewal or close to or over utilization to run their own renewal and expansion within the kind of in-product purchasing that they had built. That is a prime example where you're kind of flipping the IT and biz tech team from a reactive sort of build the features that you're getting requests for to a legitimate product strategy organization that is now doing the kind of work that is ordinarily found in the core product team, building in these kinds of features in the core product offering that you have this entire team that's capable, that has off the shelf tooling that can do these kinds of things. So it's probably not only more efficient to build and ship this within Salesforce and Zora than build this into your product, but it's something that can be surfaced from a group that has capacity, has the knowledge of the business that they've basically connected 
RevOps and they spotted something in the RevOps data as the systems team and said, this, this is a problem we shouldn't be doing. We shouldn't be spending the time on these kinds of things that we are. It doesn't make business sense and running that self-sufficiently. And I, I just feel that you put a ceiling on the level of capability you can acquire to a biz tech team when it is housed within RevOps, because at the end of the day, RevOps owns tech. And when you spin it out and it's a function like this, I think that you can see performance like that. And I think like the other beneficial domino effect that you just uncovered is that it actually brings the internal systems closer to the product itself, right? And if you're an Envision or a Miro or in one of those types of companies that you're describing where product-led growth is at the core of what you do, connecting information, data, subscriptions from the product to your internal systems is something that probably a lot of those systems teams at other companies would be complaining about. Right. Or, or saying like, man, I wish we could just be tighter with the product in order to do this. And I think by setting up the, the org structure in the way that you're describing, an incredible benefit of that is to actually bring those internal systems and the product closer together in a world where that basically has to be table stakes now. Because otherwise, if they operate completely independent of one another, like you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah, for sure. Well, you you bring up something interesting that I'm curious to, to maybe pose something to you and, and change direction a little bit which is bringing the systems teams into the product context more, particularly in PLG. And I think PLG is, everyone's talking about it as an identity. It is, it is the go-to-market identity, yeah. which I, I, take, I take a little bit of issue with. I think that it needs to be viewed as sort of a, a, a motion, a, sure. a piece of the puzzle. But I think what it has uncovered, and, and I'm starting to talk more about, is the areas in which RevOps is extending into different parts of the business, especially in something like PLG, when is it time for us to pick our heads up and say 80% of RevOps leaders today, and I think it's something like that, maybe a little bit less, come from a sales ops background? Is that the right background for our heads of RevOps today? And I, I had posted a poll on LinkedIn last week, basically saying, what is the right function for your head of RevOps to come from? Sales ops, marketing ops, CS, or finance. And then a lot of people had sort of added product and analytics to that. And it opened up this really interesting conversation, which goes back to what we've been talking about related to the fact that RevOps just owns <laughs> so many different yeah. distinct functions yeah. that why are we defaulting to saying, yeah, this one function that falls under RevOps is where all RevOps leaders should come from? And then that's not even taking into account the context of PLG versus sales-led. Like, should those RevOps leaders look the same? Because I think a lot of them do. And is that the right background? So I know I took us on a, a huge kind of segue, but I'm, I'm curious if you, as someone in the space, have, have thoughts on that and sort of the evolution to come. Yeah, so I believe very strongly that there's going to be this intersection between kind of what you would traditionally think of as customer ops, what you would traditionally think of as customer marketing, and what you would traditionally think of as, we'll call it product ops, but just product in general, right? So customer ops, product, and customer marketing. I think there's going to be a very small subset of people who can operate at the center of those three things that are going to have like this superpower in the world that you're describing. Because what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to 
understand product usage. You need to be able to understand how that product usage should trigger specific communication to customers. And then you should be able to understand what humans on your internal teams should be able to do with that product usage and communication information, right? So like that's a lot, but I think that operators who set themselves up to sit at the intersection of those things, if PLG is gonna be the primary go-to-market motion for your company, those people are gonna be able to set themselves apart and being really, really high demand, right? And so like, if you're talking tools, right? Like maybe, you know, your Pendo example, if you can be an expert in that and an expert in Gainsight and then an expert in whatever you're using to send out the communications, Gainsight too, like all of a sudden you are incredibly well positioned to take advantage of that particular motion. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, fully. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, it's just, it it is so, I mean, obviously analytical, but I think the rigor of RevOps analytics is getting so much deeper and extending beyond just sales analytics and, you know, pipeline forecasting on the, you know, pure sales side, which really was the the early origins of sales ops, RevOps. And you get into things like product analytics. And that's when I think a lot of folks start saying, you know, head of RevOps in PLG should come from a product or analytics or even finance background. I've heard a lot because by nature, they're just more sort of quantitative individuals that have been you know, stressing that and kind of flexing that muscle for so long. So it's interesting to see where it'll go. Before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months? Hmm. There's a book that I pick up regularly, but have been back at it recently, which is called Think on These Things. It's an Indian philosopher, really just sort of helps shape perspective and view of the world, our life, our place in it. So I, I enjoy that to, to kind of you know help take a step back from things. I'll have to check that out. Favorite part about working in ops? I'm, I'm giving you an honorary in ops here. I would say... The ambiguity is, again, like as we touched on, like these are the conversations that we have day in and day out is there is no right way in all contexts. It is all situational and contextual. And so I think the ability to just absorb from seeing so many different things and then figuring out how to apply that to the, you know, ambiguous challenge that you're trying to solve is what makes it fun and continuously interesting. Flip side, least favorite part about working in ops or with ops? <laughs> I think I think the also touches on, on some things that we covered. Just the strain on the dynamics between various functions. I think it's brutal to see the directions that ops gets pulled in. The number of people and teams that ops needs to, to please. I think sometimes it can be a little bit of a of a thankless job. And so, you know, I talk to a lot of folks that that can be a, a frustrating piece. And it's just a reminder to kind of keep evangelizing for yourself and keep, you know, showing the impact and value of the work. But I know it, it can be easier said than done. For sure. Someone who impacted you getting to the job you have today? I would have to say my wife, who I was just talking to her the other day. And I was like, I would never be working for myself if it wasn't for you who encouraged me to quit my second job when I was 24 years old. Cause I was like, I think I can 
do this. I can start a recruiting firm. And she was like, you should, you should go ahead and do it then. So my girlfriend at the time, now wife, I, uh, I think I got to give the credit there. That's awesome. All right. Last one. One piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. I think, well, for, for me specifically, I think it's, and I say this also as a reminder to myself, but embrace the, the mundane. I think what a lot of people will say about success is that your superpower is having the ability to do the things that other people aren't necessarily willing to do. So there's a lot of times running, you know, a small business where you're doing things that you don't feel like you should be doing at this stage in your in your career, but I think you know, there's plenty of ops leaders that have gone to early stage startups and are back in a tactical role, I think to get through to the other side and particularly for folks who want to build something and really kind of leave an impact on that. It's just a reminder to sort of embrace the mundane. Thanks so much to Max for joining us on this week's episode of Operations. If you liked what you heard, make sure you're subscribed to our show so you get a new episode in your feed every other Friday. Also, if you'd prefer, we have a YouTube version of the show now. You can find Operations with Sean Lane YouTube channel. Last but not least, if you learned something from today's show, please make sure you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, six-star reviews only. All right, that's going to do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Today's episode is sponsored by Fullcast, your go-to-market planning platform. If you've ever spent hours or days building territory and quota plans only to have them be out of date the second the reps hit the street, you need to check out Fullcast. With Fullcast, you set intelligent rule-based policies that automate all of the time-consuming manual tasks that hit RevOps teams throughout the year. With virtually no effort, operations will always seamlessly align with your plan. Learn more about Fullcast today by visiting fullcast.io.